Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And that's right, there's no Jack Schneider this week. He's away. And so I am taking this opportunity to share an interview I recently did with another historian. His name is Thomas Zimmer, and he hosts a podcast called Is This Democracy? You are definitely going to want to subscribe. Now, what I so appreciate about Thomas and his work is that he is laser-focused on trying to help us make sense of the effort underway right now to roll back the civil rights gains that have been made since the 1960s. So when he asked if I'd be willing to come on his podcast to talk about public education, I was thrilled. Okay, full disclosure, I kind of invited myself onto his show. And I'm really glad that I did, because we got to go deep on the escalating assault on our public schools. Like, what is the right really after? And why do Democrats seem to have such a hard time responding to this stuff? I think you'll find our conversation enlightening and, dare I say, interesting. And don't worry, everyone's favorite historian, Jack Schneider, will be back for the next episode of Have You Heard? And just a quick reminder that we rely on your support to keep the podcast going and pay our excellent producer. For as little as $2 a month, you can get a custom reading list to go with each episode and extended play episodes. And right now, if you chip in $10 a month, you get a brand new copy of the paperback edition of our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, complete with a new preface. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and sign up. And now here is my interview with Thomas Zimmer. Thomas, take it away. Jennifer Berkshire, welcome to Is This Democracy? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so for many years now, you have devoted your work to public education, to the political conflict about education in America. And first of all, I'm very glad that you did because um, we need your work out there. And I certainly need help. Uh, I, I need you to help me understand what is going on. But I am interested to hear your origin story, if you will. How, when, and why did you decide to make this your thing, for lack of a better word, to spend your time and effort on this? So I ended up working for one of the statewide teachers unions in Massachusetts starting in 2006. And I didn't know anything about public education other than that I had been through a lot of it. And it just happened that my time at the union coincided with really what would be the peak of the education reform era. And this was this sort of extraordinary coalition and agreement around a set of ideas that the best thing we could do to help students achieve at high levels, regardless of their, their race or income, was to weaken unions, cut through red tapes, and that things like democracy were not nearly as important as, say, student achievement. And I was just fascinated by, one, the level of agreement, but also as someone who had come out of the political left, I recognized that there was an awful lot 
of sort of conservative messaging just below the surface. And so I got interested and I started kind of like peeling back the, the layers. And it always seemed to me that it didn't take much effort to find some pure right-wing cause below the kind of Obama-era education reform talking point. And that really that really set me on my path. And so as that coalition has now completely fallen apart, and a really a much earlier vision of school privatization, of, of the public paying for religious education, um, as you know, using schools to raise up uh, a generation of patriots and Christians, as all of that has returned to the fore, I'm in the fortunate position of, I think, having a good sense of, of where it came from and why it was, why it was kind of idle for, you know, 30 years or so. Uh, we will have to dive deep into a lot of what you just uh, touched on there, especially that sort of bipartisan, almost consensus around, you know, a certain sort of education reform sort of direction that is probably looking back at it now, not what we would have wanted. Um, but before, before we do that, I, I want to maybe just to set the scene a little bit. Um, it seems to me that we are getting, because that's where the conflict is, we're getting a lot of, you know, reports and uh, and pictures from angry sp school board meetings and like angry parents and well they're mostly often they're conservative activists but they're described as concerned parents um but my general sense is and you'll have to tell me if this is correct or not that this doesn't really reflect how Americans in general if if that is a thing uh look at public education like what do we know about sort of general attitudes towards public education in the population again, so that we can maybe have sort of a, a sort of a frame of reference to 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 understand is is the angry school board meetings. Does that actually reflect where sort of Americans are on public education? No, it really doesn't. And what's interesting is that you can go back decade after decade and see the same dynamic where the people who actually have kids who attend the public schools are much happier with their quality than, than the sort of national picture, right? So if you ask people like, what do you think about your own kids' schools? The, the, their response is much more positive than if you ask them about the quality of the nation's schools. But the other piece of that that's really important is that parents tend to be much happier with school quality than do elites. And that means policy elites, but also journalists, the people who write the stories. And that is a lot of the energy that fueled the Obama era of education reform that I was describing, but also fuels what I think is really shoddy reporting this time around. So think how often you have heard a version of the story that starts in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin tapping into parent outrage over school closures. And then that same, we hear that same origin story used to explain an ever morphing series of, of parent complaints and, and hostility towards various school-related policies. So first it had to do with school closures, then COVID mitigation, then critical race theory, sometimes social and emotional learning. Now we're on to gender ideology. And finally, we're supposed to understand that 
the same parents who are so unhappy about COVID-related school closings are now rising up in mass to demand that their states fund private school tuition for affluent parents. So the theory of change really doesn't make any sense, but I think that that reporters and pundits in particular tend to be very gullible about this stuff because they are more skeptical about the quality of public education in this country than are the people who actually send their kids to public schools. I mean, that really shapes coverage in so many areas. If you ask yourself, why do we get so much sort of normalization and legitimization of these sort of right-wing, right-wing grievances, then it's often because the people who are still sort of predominantly in charge of our media coverage, they share certain grievances and certain sort of certain sensibilities, right? They might not be, they might not vote for the Republican Party, but they are very open for the kind of grievances coming from those sorts of reactions. And I think that's that's probably something that's happening here, right? Absolutely, because the the grievances all get uh, lumped together into a single category. Parents are mad. But if you look at the story of what happened in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin very skillfully tapped into two very distinct sets of grievances. So one is the traditional Republican base that is being fed a nonstop diet of red meat. And at the time of the election, it was about critical race theory. So though the reporters would go and interview a rural voter who didn't want kids being taught critical race theory. But then Youngkin is also So speaking very skillfully to affluent parents who worry that their kids are going to lose out on access to the elite magnet school because of something like affirmative action. Right. That the by by changing the admission requirements to the elite magnet school that, you know, merit is going to be downplayed. And instead, kids who really aren't deserving are going to get a shot. And suddenly, you know, little Thomas, his path to the Ivy League looks a lot less certain. And I think that, too, is an area where where pundits and reporters, especially at at our sort of leading publications, are so susceptible to that narrative because they are themselves creatures of the meritocracy. I like how you used little Thomas as an example there. (laughs) Um, So um, clearly, um, as you've already outlined, the problem for public education in America is not just that the American right doesn't like it, but that is a problem. (laughs) The, The fact is that the American right really doesn't like public education and the the people who 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 don't sort of conservative reactionary forces that really don't like public education are in charge of one of our two two uh, major parties. So we are currently experiencing a sort of escalating radicalizing right wing assault on on public public education, both K through twelve and higher education. We've seen a radical push for school privatization across red states over the past few years, and at the same time, a sort of attempted authoritarian takeover of of education in the form of literally hundreds of bills establishing tight control over the ways in which issues of race and gender specifically can be brought up in the classroom, establishing state censorship, banning books, purging anything that dares to descend from a sort of white nationalist understanding of the nation's past or present. Um, So, I mean, this is maybe a sort of a a broad question. Why do conservatives hate public education so much, right? And, And what do they want? If they succeeded, 
total victory tomorrow? What would education in this country look like? Now, to kind of specify the question a little bit, in your latest piece in The Nation that came out about a month ago, it was titled Robbing from the Poor to Educate the Rich. You wrote that what's actually going on here is, this is a quote, a reverse Robin Hood scheme that Americans would hate if they fully understood what was going on. So let's unpack that a little bit. What is that scheme that Americans might not fully understand? So I, I mentioned a minute ago that, you know, this sort of preposterous argument that somehow the same people who were angry that schools stayed closed for so long during the pandemic are now rising up in mass to demand that their legislators enact enormous private school voucher programs that pick up the tab for parents whose kids already attended private school. And so I think here here again, this is a place where, where I feel I, either reporters and pundits are missing the story or getting the story wrong. Way back when we first started hearing about voucher programs in places like Milwaukee and DC, the idea was that they would be, you know, set up very, you know, like highly regulated, but also limited to a specific population of kids who their parents were low income. They were meant to serve as an escape hatch from underperforming schools. There is nothing like that at all in these enormous voucher programs. They're often called universal voucher programs. And so the idea is that, you know, like the states like Iowa and Arkansas and, you know, Florida will be next, is that the state is suddenly picking up the tab for for private school tuition. And, you know, this is all the more ironic given the, you know, the sort of deficit concern trolling we hear from the right all the time that like, wait a second, you, uh, you suddenly found this this enormous pot of money. And part of it is that states, red states, uh, right now are awash in money from the, you know, like loathed Biden COVID relief funds. Um, but really what's happening is that this is a wealth transfer from kids who attend public schools and from rural kids in particular, because private schools virt- are virtually non-existent in rural areas. And so we will see a reckoning within the next few years as the the budget status of these states starts to look a lot rosy, a lot less rosy because um basically what the states have done is created powerful new lobby groups. Um and and the public schools will then be just another special interest that has to compete with with the wealthiest parents in the state for funds at a time when politicians are spending all their time beating up on the schools. So that's the like that's sort of the the piece that I think people would be a lot madder about if they read about it, but it fits into this this larger issue that you raise. What is it that what are conservatives up to and what do they want? And you often talk about on this show, and it's the reason why I listen to it, about this sort of great civil rights rollback. And what we see is that Republican education policy is moving in two directions at once that seem really contradictory. So on the one hand, there's this crackdown on what teachers can teach and kids can learn that everyone is now so familiar with, right? We're constantly clicking on stories about the latest outrage from Florida. But at the exact same time, these states are also encouraging kids to leave the public system into a completely unregulated private system. 
And it's not just that you would take your state-funded voucher and attend a private school. It's that you can parents can use the money for whatever they want. They can purchase things on Amazon, and that's considered school. In a growing number of states, you now get the equivalent of an edu-debit card. And what you do with it is up to you. There's no regulation by design because this theory of change is that the parents are the regulators. And so when you think about those things, they seem wildly contradictory. Like, why would you, why would you pass laws saying that kids can't take, say, action physics? Or, you know, like publishers have to rewrite the lesson of Rosa Parks so that the first grader reading about her has no idea that race was involved in what happened on that bus, <laughs> right? But then, then let parents do whatever they want. Well, both of those moves either work to weaken what the right refers to disparagingly as the civil rights regime, or they move kids out from it entirely. So once you take that private school voucher or that edu-debit card, you sign away all of the rights that are attached to the quote-unquote government school, as folks like Christopher Rufo love to refer to public schools as. And that means that you know all these things that the right complains about say the 14th amendment, right? They don't, they don't apply anymore. Um, public schools can turn away kids for virtually any reason. In, uh, in Florida this fall, uh, private religious schools sent around a letter to parents saying, you know what, um, gay and lesbian families, you're not welcome here anymore because your lifestyle is not biblical. That is a school that gets something like a million and a half dollars a year in tax dollars, and there's nothing anybody can do about it because it exists outside of the quote unquote civil rights regime. I mean, there's there's two different things in in what you just said that are so important, and I'm just going to sort of unpack them separately one more time just to make sure that everyone gets this. So the first one is sort of that wealth distribution upwards, right? Um, that comes with the voucher system and, and in general, sort of the, the, the privatization of the, the public sector, uh, the, the education sector. And then the second thing is that it's a weird mixture of state authoritarianism on one hand and privatization on the other, which seems to be contradictory, but is probably not. So, so let's tackle them sort of separately, just again, to, to make sure. I just, again, just because I'm not entirely sure how familiar our listeners with the, are with the voucher system, I just want to make sure to, that, that everyone understands why that is a sort of a wealth transfer, right? Because basically, the, the public is giving parents money, right? They're giving them a voucher in, well, I, I don't know how, how much that is per kid. It probably, it, it depends on where you are probably, right? What, what are we talking about in, so in, in terms of like monetary value that you, that you get there as a parent? So we're we're already venturing into the weeds here because yeah. some like some states treat this as just what you described. This yeah. is like okay. a straight up voucher, which is you know this that's a vision that dates back to Milton Friedman. Yes, but the real dream right now is what's called an education savings account. That's the idea that some percentage of the of what your state spends to educate kids um, or, you know, and, and what's been interesting about watching this latest round unfold is that these these uh, we're talking about a lot of money. Right. Um, but here's a key. 
it's never enough money to pay for the full private school tuition. And so this actually serves another nifty purpose, which is to start to get parents to think about K-12 the way they think about college, that you're going to get some assistance, but it's not going to be enough. And so you're going to pick up the rest of the tab yourself. And so this is another, another way that these programs benefit the more affluent because the original recipients of of vouchers under say the Milwaukee plan or the DC opportunity scholarships the you know the understanding was that they were too poor to afford private school tuition on their own so in practice this is subsidizing uh sort of people who are mostly already sending their kids to private schools and now all of a sudden they basically get a subsidy from the state right that this is what's actually happening here right so, so, so that that's that's exactly what's happening and so we as as little oversight as there is for these programs we do have that data so we can see that in in Arizona it's something like 80% of the people who are claiming their new universal voucher never had kids who attended public school. In in New Hampshire, it's like 75%. So what gets complicated about this is that states have figured out very creative ways to subsidize parents' private school tuition. And this is because, you know, we used to have this thing called the separation between church and state. And I know we're going to get to that a little bit later on. But in order to get around that, there were a number of states that would basically use tax credits so that so that wealthy individuals and corporations could donate to what they called a scholarship fund. And so in those cases, you're literally seeing states rewrite their tax codes in order to benefit the most wealthy residents. And so that's why these, you know, I think people would be really at a time when people are so conscious of inequality, I wish they would pay a little more attention to what's happening on the school privatization front. So this could be read superficially, right? Um, The way we've talked about the wealth distribution upwards kind of uh, uh, dimension of this. You could read this superficially as all the culture war stuff. That's just a distraction. They don't really mean that. It's actually just, this is just wealthy people trying to figure out ways not to share their wealth. It's about the money, it's plutocracy, that sort of thing. But that's probably not an adequate understanding, an adequate way to understand what's going on here because you already sort of tied it into that broader sort of uh, attempt to roll back the post-1960 civil rights um, order, right? And 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 there, right, that is not just about the money. It's not just about, it, it is absolutely also about wealth distribution upwards, right? Um, but I think we need to be, we need to make sure that it's not an either or, right? It's, it is about the money, but it is also about these sort of social and cultural issues because, again, undermining public education serves both causes. I think that is sort of where, uh, if, if, if you, so from the perspective of the right, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? It's either about the money or about the sort of culture war stuff. It's both. That's the beauty of this, right? Public education is, from the right's perspective, a sort of a threat to traditional hierarchies of wealth. That's where the sort of resource redistribution comes in. But it's also a threat to traditional hierarchies of race and gender and religion, right? Because again, it, it can be potentially 
uh, empowering sort of through civics education. And then people start asking questions about sort of the traditional status quo. And they are aggressively opposed to any attempt at sort of leveling hierarchies, right? Of race, gender, religion, but also wealth. And again, that's why that's the quote unquote beauty of this, the game that they're playing. They get both. Is, is that a f- sort of fair way to sort of think about this kind of stuff? Uh, so that you're spot on. And and really, you know, we need to think about who is in this particular coalition yeah. and, and what are their goals. And so one big part of this coalition is the libertarian right for whom the effort to privatize schools goes back to, you know, to Milton Friedman. And and so they saw an enormous opportunity first with the pandemic. We mentioned at the end of our book that, you know, like within minutes after schools shut down, the Heritage Foundation came out with this kind of faux official report um, instructing states to immediately begin restructuring their, their school funding systems so that money would go directly to parents. They would fund students, not systems. And so basically they had all of these right-wing libertarian ideas on the shelf um, and they saw the pandemic as an opportunity to begin to to get states to enact those. But then an even bigger opportunity came along, and that was the culture war. And so they have really leaned in hard to to culture war stuff. And that's where like they like I don't think that that a lot of the sort of old heritage school choice true believers, really, you know, like believe, like they're typing these ridiculous reports about, um, about how you woke in schools and, um, there, I think that it is very cynical. Um, but then you have the kind of illiberal right, which is happy to be in coalition with the libertarians, even though, as I often point out, if you visit say Orban's Hungary, there is no school choice in Hungary, because your real authoritarian move is to drive your program through the the state controlled schools. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad. Sorry, I'm so glad you mentioned this because that is something that is weird, right? I mean, it is again, weird. like if, if you if you don't know much about the American right, if you take Ron DeSantis in Florida, his anti-democratic record has rightly been compared to what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary. I think my, my colleague Don Monihan here at Georgetown has called him Orban with a tan. Right. Which I think, and specifically for his sort of authoritarian takeover of, of education, I think that's quite apt. And that is the standard playbook, right? Uh, tight control of education because they want, they want to be in control of the national story and of national identity. They want to enforce a certain national story and, and, and national identity, one that normalizes existing power relations, right? And, and sort of legitimizes traditional hierarchies rather than one that questions and undermines the, the traditional order. And by the way, we see this in radicalized versions in, in some states. I mean, the GOP has demanded of cameras in every classroom um, because they, they love the idea of making conservative parents of deputies of, of the white nationalist state, right? Um, but then, just like you said, here in the US, you also have this drive for privatization, less state control, which again, traditional authoritarian playbook, uh-uh, that's a no-no. We want to be in charge here. So there's, there seems to be intention in there. And so we, we should maybe unpack this a little more, like what is going on there? And you already said, it, it. you can only understand if you understand this sort of bargain that these different sides have sort of made with each other. 
Yeah, and I think you know what's what's confusing about it is that it does really feel like it's a unified piece. And and one of my frustrations is that there's so little coverage of the privatization part. Yeah. So for example, I cannot even count the number of stories coming out about things like book banning in Florida. But Florida is also on the cusp of enacting a uh, uh, enormous universal voucher program. And so what always interests me is where the various groups in this coalition disagree. Um, And so in Florida, for example, there is a nasty battle brewing over the group that oversees the quote unquote scholarships, right? This This is the state money that goes to fund private school vouchers, but they're also funded through tax credits, but they, they have a budget that puts them on par with the American Cancer Society. That's how big they are. Well, suddenly you have the conservative groups, the sort of moms for liberty, right? Ron DeSantis's shock troops arguing that this enormous organization, it's called Step Up for Students, is too woke. Because if you go back just 15 minutes ago, the discourse that you were gonna use to justify school privatization was the language of civil rights. And you see groups on the right now kind of arguing over what, you know, what makes the most sense as far as their direction. There was a report recently from the Manhattan Institute, and I should say report with finger quotes, um, because these, you know, they're just the most kind of ideological statements. But this one was about, they were trying to measure the exposure of kids to, to what they call critical race theory. And their frustration is that school choice basically isn't enough, right? Because I think that you have a loud and large part of the right right now that's saying that's the solution. That, you know, the way that we are going to reverse engineer the civil rights revolution is to move kids into conservative private schools and homeschool them. And here, you know, these Manhattan Institute guys, they use some metrics and they say, you know, it, it isn't enough. We really need to focus on uh, public schools because that's that's where the kids are. So I see that as kind of an, an interesting tension that is going to continue to play out uh, because even though it sounds complicated, you know, the different arguments that are being made about patriotism and all these different weedy varieties of, of school choice, what the right is really trying to figure out how to do is to grow kids who will vote for their yeah. political and economic platform. Yes. Yep. And they're actually quite open about that. And so somebody like a Larry Arn, who's the president of Hillsdale College, you know, he openly bemoans this. Like schools are turning out kids who vote for Bernie Sanders. And that's how we know that they are failing. And we will we will know that our schools are succeeding when kids make a very different choice at the polls. And so that's, you know, they're like they're openly saying this. Yeah. I I love I love that you sort of ended there and then sort of made that the, the key point here, because this is an area where you have to make sure you're not missing the forest for the trees, right? Okay, yes, there's the, the, the hardcore market fundamentalist libertarian wing 
yes, there's this sort of right-wing traditionalist wing, and they don't necessarily agree on everything. Um, and they are kind of like, you know, you, you, you hear this from the traditionalist wing. There's a certain frustration right now. There's these reactionary intellectuals talking about how, oh, you know, we've, we've, we've done all this uh, market fundamentalism, uh, free market fundamentalism for decades, and where, where did it get us? Like, it's still wokeism running amok, and, and now we, we need to sort of cut our ties with the libertarians, whatever. But at the end of the day, right, these two things, state authoritarian control of, of, of public education, but also privatization, they go nicely hand in hand. Just if you think about for a second, where does the voucher money go? What does privatization actually look like? It's not like that money goes to super woke private schools. It goes predominantly to conservative schools, to religious schools specifically, right? So even if you are, I don't know, like a national conservative, I don't like the libertarians, I need I need state control. Yeah, but you like those private schools that are springing up, right? You, you like those because they're, they're mostly religious schools, right? If we're thinking about where does this sit in the broader context of, the sort of reactionary counter-mobilization that, that we are seeing. And it has been escalating since about 2020 or so, right? Because this is not happening in a vacuum, right? Like you said, like it's about making sure that there are enough young people who grow up to still vote Republican, right? And, and that is how it ties into that broader sort of general assault on the post-1960s right revolution, this attempt to roll back rights for women, for tr traditionally marginalized groups, this assault on voting rights, the, the purging of election commissions, the criminalizing of protest, it's one political project, right? Because again, they know they don't have majorities for this. They know it's a minoritarian project. They know their vision is not popular. So they have to stop, they have to stop the population moving away from them. And they understand the role of education in this. That that's so key. And there's another piece of this that I want to make sure that people who are maybe outside of Eduland that I want to make sure that they that they understand it. So one thing that's that fascinates me is how crude the rights theory of change is. That basically like if you tell kids this, then they will do this. And anyone who's ever been around young people knows that this actually is, you know, like a very it's not so easy, right, to, to get the desired outcome. So as you know, from all of your attention to the civil rights rollback, one of the rights obsessions is they will accuse liberals of continually creating new rights. And I think it's so key that people understand that in the U.S., schools are really the terrain on which civil rights are defended and expanded. And so, you know, like that, when you hear uh, Republican legislators railing against the Department of Education, for example, which they have done forever, this is really what it's about. They would like to untether themselves from the civil rights regime. And that means not having to monitor civil rights enforcement when it comes to things like, you know, race or gender, and certainly not the enforcement of the, the Biden's attempt to expand civil rights to include trans kids. So this is such a huge deal because the like if you read what the right is saying about this, they have this very kind of crude understanding that if you extend a right, 
then you get a group of stakeholders to go along with it. And then they're going to vote for you in order to keep their, to make sure that their right is defended and protected. And so I think that's actually a big part of why they are so obsessed with the issue of trans kids in schools, that they literally are convinced that public our public education system is creating a whole new identity just so that it will grow up and vote for Democrats. <laughs> I mean, um, let's talk a little bit about the history of this, right? Because this right-wing assault on public education is not new. As a matter of fact, again, it's in a way it's eternal, right? I mean, really since the formation of modern conservatism as a political project in sort of the middle decades of the 20th century, this has been a key ingredient. Um, and so, so let's talk a little bit about sort of the traditions and continuities of, of this. It seems to me that we need to start in the 50s probably, right? If we want to understand the origins of this drive to privatize education, this idea of school choice, uh, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Um, so maybe like in broad strokes, because again, like we can't dive super deep into like the, the history of this, but, but what happened there in, in, in the 50s and, and why did it happen there in the 50s or late 50s, early 60s, wherever, that, that, sort, of, that sort of era? Um, why do the origins of much of what we're talking about here why why can we find them there? So one of the things that I am just astonished by again and again is how you can go back actually much further than the 50s yeah. and find the same fights playing out again and again. So actually the first time that we had a real parents' rights crusade in this country <laughs> was in opposition to banning child labor. That, you know, you had industry groups that launched what was essentially the first AstroTurf campaign that, you know, that they would send out these newsletters, you know, like they had they had a group. It was called something like, you know, farmers and parents standing together. And then they would warn that, you know, if the if the U.S. amended its constitution to ban child labor, little Thomas wouldn't be able to help out on the family farm. Uh, little Jenny wouldn't be able to do the dishes. And so the older fight is always sort of parents versus the state. And in the U.S., it's completely bound up with fears over communism. And so you can go back decade after decade and find parents worrying that their kids are being experimented on in schools, that there's some larger vision to create a new American. There's a great history by Michelle Nickerson about how you know parents in the 50s were obsessed with mental health. Um, we hear the echoes of this today and worrying that that liberal elites were were basically like smuggling their ideas into kids' brains by virtue of this new discourse of mental health or using um, kind of like questionnaires. There's always like decade after decade, you see this real fear over questionnaires being used to kind of spy on families and and figure out ways that, you know, like what are what are parents really doing at, at home? But then you're right. In the 50s, this takes on a kind of new scale and urgency because of the Supreme Court uh, Brown versus Board decision. We were talking about this in my class at Boston College yesterday, and I was somewhat dismayed to learn that I only had one student who had ever heard of Brown v. Board. Seriously? <laughs> oh, wow. I know. Oh, not good. 
that's not good. Oh, okay. I usually yeah. try. I usually try not to be one of those. It, this is very sort of amongst historians. Like there's uh, sort of a widespread kind of feeling of, oh, the kids these days they don't even know when I don't know the First World War ended or whatever. And usually I'm like, oh, you know, who cares about like dates and whatever? But this is one where I I'm also like, no, people should know this. <laughs> so so yeah, so you know, you have this 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 foundational decision that separate cannot be equal and, you know, and uh, desegregation orders play out across the land. And then you really, you have this massive resistance and the, the resistance is to integrating schools. And so you see this tremendous push for school privatization. And there's this, you know, really kind of spooky moment in Nancy McLean's wonderful book where you have the architects of privatization in Virginia, which shut down its public schools for an extended period of time rather than see them integrated. They realize that the language of race is not helping them with their cause. Their cause is privatization. And so they then begin to use the language of the market. And so you see this kind of, you know, mass awakening that, you know, you can't be explicitly racist, right? That we're, you know, we're not going to call them segregation academies anymore. Instead, we're going to use this language of the market to justify parent choice, even if the end game is ultimately the same. And so you see this pick up again and again over the decades. And then in the 90s, once again, you have another just tremendous push for parent rights that has largely been forgotten. I want to get to the 90s in a second, because that is mm -hmm. super interesting how that is, how that was maybe not super successful, making it all about sort of parents' rights, mm -hmm. right? But but it's just to stay on the 50s, because again, mm -hmm. we, we talked earlier in our conversation about how the American right, again, as, as modern conservatism comes together as sort of an alliance between right-wing uh, libertarians and sort of the traditionalists, right? And then and then a little later, sort of the, the, the religious sort of uh, uh, conservatives. Um, and you see that they come together here in the 50s, right? And they come together because, again, the Supreme Court says, all right, we're going to be serious now. We're going to desegregate the, the education uh, uh, system. And then all these people like no we don't we don't want desegregation but they realize oh no but you can't you can't say it you cannot make the argument against segregation in terms of race it doesn't work anymore and you have these libertarians coming in saying hey we got a great idea how about we 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 talk about it in terms of like school choice and I don't know. We talk about it in terms of, um, you know, efficiency or uh, uh, market principles, or and, and, and that that sort of thing, right? Um, and so this is how they sort of come together, right? And it it also it 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 goes back to something we touched upon earlier. The start the story again is not either race or wealth and money. It's not either culture wars or economics. It's all of it, right? And and the right is serious about all of it. And again, different wings of the right are sort of more serious about some of these issues than about others, right? But it is in general about traditional hierarchies, race, gender, religion, and wealth, right? All of this. And this is how they come together in this sort of weird alliance that we then call modern conservatism. That's right. And it's so important also to think about what happens to the Democrats as a result, that they look out upon this landscape and they see the scenes of backlash to things like court-ordered busing 
and desegregation plans, and they get very fearful. And the complexion of the Supreme Court changes, and suddenly in the 70s, you have these two massive decisions come down. One about school funding, the Rodriguez case, which is 50 years old this year, and one, the Milliken case, which basically says that uh, we can't desegregate um, at a county level at a metropolitan level, right? That, that, that what was happening was that you increasingly had urban areas with dense concentrations of kids of color and then affluent white suburbs sort of around them like satellites. And the Supreme Court says that we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. And so that basically gets taken off the table. And so then that kind of sets the stage for what we were talking about earlier. This, 30-year partnership between the right and Democrats about, well, what are we, what are we going to do about the, the schools? And so there too, you, you do not have to look very far to find racist language, social science in particular, um, about, you know, like where you have these kind of elites making the argument that money doesn't matter because those kids can't learn. But, but really what you had was the emergence of a kind of libertarian discourse around choice, efficiency, rolling back regulation, um, weakening teachers unions, all then in the, the name of improving student performance, but helping us, you know, we were going to be, this was the way that we were going to become competitive uh, as a nation. So, so we're basically in the 90s now and, and kind of already touched on how at that point it's it's not at all just a story of the right undermining pub, public education. And we'll talk about that. Um, but just one step before we get there um, is that sort of parents' rights thing in the 90s that I just want to um, um, go back to a little bit because it is so interesting. So again, framing opposition to public education in terms of parents' rights, that's very old, right? But there is something interesting in the 90s where the Republican Party like Newt Gingrich like picks it up and and it's like oh this is this is I'm gonna make this my thing right um so there is a a sort of a, a parents rights push um against public education in the 90s but and I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit it it wasn't very successful necessarily right they didn't like again they're they're back to it now, and unfortunately, they're being very successful right now. But but in the '90s, it didn't really work for them. Why not? Whenever there's a parents' rights push, it's it's always the same. You have parents who look around, and the speed and scale of cultural change is makes them deeply anxious. And the targets vary over the years. So, like in the in the '70s, it was the kind of, you know, with Vietnam era, they were very unhappy that, you know, kids were smoking dope, they were growing their hair out, they were disrespectful to their elders. And so you can go back and you can read them saying this. And inevitably, they they view, they look at the schools, it's got to be the schools, where else can the kids be learning it? In the 90s, as the, the movement to expand gay and lesbian rights, yeah. Uh, gain steam, you have the same thing again, that the schools are undermining morality, that the culture is changing so fast. And this is an effort to, to really tap the brakes. And it's really the same thing that we saw in the kind of post George Floyd era, right? That all these areas that had never seen protests look around and say, they're not getting this stuff from me. It must be the schools. Yeah. So what happened in the, in the nineties was that the, the a cause that sounded appealing in the abstract, 
who could be opposed to the idea of giving parents more say over the, they refer to it as the, you know, the directing the health and education of their children. Who could be opposed to that? Conservatives make everything sound like that, right? I mean, it's it's, it's the same with all the names they come up for these institutes and think tanks and, and whatever, like the most even generic or like benevolent sounding names. And it's like this, it's always the same kind of reactionary project. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. That, that's right. Let me talk to you about paycheck protection. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what would happen was that, you know, in like in state after state, there was an effort to amend state constitutions to include this language protecting parent rights. And and you would see as as people got a keener sense of what it actually entailed, public support would start to drop. And the reason was that something that sounded good in the abstract was much less appealing when it turned out to be about banning books or limiting what kids could learn. Uh, like having, you know, like a handful of parents uh, not just opt their own kids out, but pressure schools to to limit curriculum choices. And I think that, you know, that's a fascinating lesson for today, because you said that that we're seeing tremendous success. Well, we're seeing tremendous success at states passing laws. Yeah. We're not seeing tremendous success in changing public opinion. Yeah. Because uh, things like book bans are, you know, it is remarkable the extent to which people are united across party lines at a time when we do not agree on anything. People agree that they are wildly opposed to book banning. Um, and, and I, you know, I look at all those polls because, you know, I keep waiting to see like, when is this going to catch up with the people who are passing the laws? And as the, as the effort to crack down on schools doesn't just intensify, but the net keeps expanding. The coalition of people who are opposed to this stuff is just going to grow. And I'll give you an example. I thought that DeSantis was quite smart in picking out as his first target the AP uh, pilot program yes. in African-American studies. It didn't exist yet. It wasn't in the schools yet. And you know, even when it is in the schools, very few people in, in Florida are actually going to take it. But then, you know, somebody tells him, you know, probably Christopher Rufo, like, broaden your campaign against the cathedral. Go after the AP program more generally. And what you see is that suddenly, like, parents uh, rise up because they are completely brought into this private program that they use one to uh, in an effort to get their kids access to competitive schools, but also as a way of, you know, like if you go into college with AP credits, it's a way of making your college experience cheaper. And so suddenly uh, that that coalition just got smaller. And I think we're going to see I think we're going to see a lot more of that. When we see groups of people rise up against ideological efforts to go after the schools, that's what draws it. It's when it's when suburban parents realize that, you know what, they're not just going after the minority kids in Kansas. This is also making my kids class size larger. This is also cutting the budget at my kids' school. And I, I think this is one lesson from history that I think we should actually be optimistic about. I'm, I'm very glad you said that. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about the Democrats, like the the capital D Democratic side of the story, because we spend a lot of time talking about the right. Um, but you know, something I find absolutely striking about the public education debate in the U.S. is that very few people in positions of power seem to be making a forceful case for civics education. Right? I'm German, so I think the contrast to Germany is really telling. In Germany, the idea of privatizing education has never gained anywhere near the same traction. There's many reasons for that, but one is that after 1945, a relatively broad consensus formed that one of the reasons why Hitler happened was a particularly authoritarian tradition in German culture, and that this needed to be changed in order to sort of prevent another rise of fascism or make stable democracy possible. By the way, whether or not the rise of Hitler could actually be explained by this supposed peculiar authoritarian tradition it's kind of besides the point because it everyone in the 50s and 60s agreed that that was the interpretation right and that very much shaped school reform debate so the result was an emphasis on civics education the key task of the public school system in post-war west germany was to create the democratic citizen that was supposed to be immune to authoritarianism, trained to question authority. That was specifically, right? That was what it was all about from, say, sort of the mid to late 60s onwards, right? There's obviously a gap between this notion and what that would look like on the ground. But still, the idea of the public school fulfilling a central role in fortifying democracy, right? That makes any push for privatization a lot more difficult in a German context, right? Because that is, again, that is sort of across party lines that is agreed upon, now, the party that would have to make such an argument for the public school, for civics education in this sense, is the Democratic Party. But it hasn't really done that in a long time, right? So what happened there, probably in the 90s, right, that, again, like, not only left sort of Democrats vulnerable on this front, but, but, but had them sort of largely agreeing with this idea that you this public education was kind of like you had to do something there and it needed to be reformed in the sense of allowing more privatization what happened there two words for you human capital oh great <laughs> love those so one thing i have learned from having various education historians on speed dial is that our understanding of why we have public education has really has shifted dramatically over time. And that, you know, if you go back to the the earliest days, people were completely united that that it was essential that our public schools raise up citizens for a democracy. Yes. And and there was just no question about that at all. But then, you know, it kind of it it morphs during the years when lots and lots of immigrants of from course, yeah. are, are are arriving. And then you have this, there's more of an emphasis on using schools to Americanize new citizens, but but also to, you know, we're gonna we're gonna use our schools to to produce people to fill to supply workers for a, an industrial economy. Yes. And then it shifts again yeah. towards this understanding that schools are our primary engine of social mobility. And, and you really, there's a terrific new book out called The Education Myth by John Shelton. He's a, a, a professor at University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. And he goes uh, sort of administration by administration and charts how, you know, how they start to use this language of human capital. And the problem with that is you, that you end up kind of undercutting 
a broader case for public education yeah. because ultimately the benefits accrue to the individual, right? That, you know, like I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to study really hard and then, you know, I'm going to make my way up the, the ladder. And that's the point of, of public education. Look at me, I'm a winner. And so as a result of this pivot to thinking of public education only in terms of human capital, the Democrats really don't, they don't have a language left yeah. to defend public education. And it's not just making the case for civics. It's, they don't have a language no. for defending the institution. And if you need any proof of this, follow Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona on Twitter. And it is like ad libs <laughs> for this kind of human capital vision. That, you know, like one day he'll tweet something about global competition uh, yeah. and the next day it will be about, you know, education as the, the surest guarantee of moving out of poverty. Yeah. And and so meanwhile, our schools are on fire. The Demo the Republicans are offering up a very clear vision of what schools should do, right? Because it isn't just that schools shouldn't teach about race or gender. It's that schools should produce patriots. Schools should produce a generation of kids yeah. that is much more respectful of free enterprise. And also that, you know, they, I don't know how serious they are about it, but they, they make the case that schools should inculcate virtue. And I have to tell you that when I have my students read conservative critiques of public education, they are quite warm to this idea because they came of age in an era where school was about testing and and social mobility. They yeah. never heard a word yes. about anything other than college and career. Yeah. And so the idea that you you know there would be an education of the mind, like even though they find the people making the case repellent they they kind of like the idea that that there's more to this than just social mobility and workforce preparation yeah i mean this is that's the triumph of neoliberalism right there in in sort of it has its breakthrough in the 90s it starts earlier of course right but i guess it's the clinton administration where that becomes sort of dogma amongst Democrats, right? Because Clinton was just all about this kind of stuff, right? It's, it's, you know, you just need, you need, you need educated workers, and then globalization that 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 will all be just fine, right? Um, and it's all about sort of market-based solutions and create opportunity and all this, like all this language of flexibility, opportunity, um, the market, and all this. It's all that's that is sort of neoliberal hegemony, right? Um, and, and what sort of what happens there? I just want to make sure. That just to, to note this, this is a transnational phenomenon, right? This is not just um, you have the same thing in the UK, also in Germany. Although again, there it's not so much in practice. It it it, it runs up against sort of more resistance in the education sector. But I mean, if if you ever want to read something that will, I mean, make your blood boil, um, go read this. Tony Blair, who like his new labor thing was was sort of the, the equivalent to what Clinton was doing in, in in the U.S. was sort of Tony Blair in the U.K. And then Gerhard Schröder, who was the the German Chancellor in in the late nineties, they put out this thing, kind of manifesto, in like ninety eight. They called it. Um, 
what's it called? The third way or the new middle or something like this. And it's, it's bizarre. If you read it today, it's like a glorification of the tech industry of Silicon Valley. The venture capitalist is described as the hero. Uh, to be clear, these are the center left social democratic parties, right? Uh, uh, um, uh, this is the Labour Party in Britain and the Social Democrats in Germany, right? Um, and it's all about, quote, getting ready for the knowledge-based service economy of the future. It's all about investment in human capital. It's it's that sort of language, right? I want to ask you one one more question, and I know, I know, and then you're already being very, very generous with your time, but this stuff is so interesting. Um, so one key development that puts us on this path towards public education being so vulnerable is the success of the, the charter school movement in the sort of early 90s. So before we talk yeah, about that, please, can, can yeah. we just, yeah, so um, so there's one, I just want to respond to that. Yeah, with go a ahead. Quick absolutely. Point. Yeah. So one thing that I find absolutely fascinating about the rights fixation with higher ed in particular right now is that if you actually read their manifestos, so on the one hand, they're, you know, these broadsides against woke culture, you know, like now they're going to root out anything having to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, but they don't have another vision for what higher education is yeah. supposed to do other than that, yeah. other, other than, than what you were just talking about, yeah. this, you know, kind of uh, human capital knowledge worker. And so the idea, like I just read this report from the Claremont Institute oh, yeah. that really lays this out, like, we're going to go to war against the civil rights regime. And then, you know, the result is that we're going to be more globally competitive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there is a broad language of neoliberal kind of stuff still in there only on the right right they also want uh they they also want the brown and the black people to just shut up right? <laughs> like and then if if they were if they would just shut up we could we could all just go back to happy dory kind human capital kind of stuff um it's quite frustrating so again this is i find this so fascinating and i've i've, I've learned almost everything I know about this from you. So, <laughs> um, so again, I think something that puts us on the path towards public education being so vulnerable is, is the success of the, the rise of the charter school movement in, in the early 90s. And specifically the fact that there is a broad compromise between left and right on this. This is not done against the Democratic Party or whatever. Like they all agree on this thing. So can we tell listeners what that was all about and, and why, again, looking back from today, trying to find, trying to figure out how we got to where we are, why this is important? So, I, you know, I mentioned that there were these landmark Supreme Court cases, and those two cases was the death knell for any, there was not going to be a, you know, a broad-based movement for desegregation or for changing our, uh, our school funding system that, yeah. you know, very regressively and heavily depends upon property taxes. So that meant if you were going to fix, quote unquote, fix public education, you were going to have to come up with, you know, innovative solutions. And there was tremendous anxiety about, you know, that, that uh, we were being um, outcompeted by the Japanese because their workers oh, yeah. were more literate. Yeah. And, and so the search for answers was very genuine. And there, you know, there was a lot of early support for charter schools, which are 
publicly funded but privately run. And the idea was that if you if you took away the red tape that was strangling traditional public schools and gave teachers the the opportunity to innovate, that that was the way that we were going to do things like close our racial achievement gaps. And so during the the 2000s and into really to the present day, you see this tremendous expansion of urban charter schools in particular. And so now... um, we reach the present and as you know i often point out that charters right now are on very shaky ground and that's because the right has gone back to its original vision which is private school vouchers and education savings accounts both of which are going to be very harmful for charter schools but you can also see how charters are vulnerable for precisely the you know the civil rights rollback that we've talked about repeatedly today, there is a move. Uh, a case is hurtling towards the Supreme Court as we speak, and this is an effort uh, by conservatives to make the case that charter schools are quote unquote non-state actors, and as a result, should not be covered by the 14th Amendment or any of the civil rights protections that apply to students in public schools. And suddenly, we are talking in particular states about substantial numbers of students. In Florida, we're going to be talking about upwards of a quarter of the kids. In Arizona, it's something like 30% of the kids who suddenly are attending schools where they are no longer covered by basic civil rights protections and their schools now have are given the green light to discriminate in all kinds of areas. And so here we have this structure that was set up. It was a compromise, as yeah. you mentioned, by right and left. And the idea is that if you make something a little less public, that's where you're going to get the innovation. Yeah. And then it turns out that, you know, the right sees this as an opportunity now in a way that Democrats are wholly unprepared yeah. for and left kind of unable to defend. Yeah, uh, this strikes me as so fundamentally important because what is so interesting here is for a while, the right went along with this bargain, right? With the charter school bargain um, until they didn't, right? Until they saw an opening and then they're right back to their ideological long-term project, right? Which is like vouchers and religion or whatever you want to, what do you want to call it? And then you look at the Democrats and they're like, oh, wait a minute, you guys, we thought we had a bargain. We, we we thought we had an agreement, right? And you're like, no, how many times can you do this? How many times can you fall for this, right? You have to take the ideological project on the right seriously, right? Otherwise, you'll always run like into these situations where you think you have a stable equilibrium, right? A stable bargain, and only for them to already undermine it while you are still celebrating that you just signed this stupid treaty with them, right? And it's again, it's abortion is the best is, is the best example. Like Roe was supposed to be the compromise. Roe v. Wade was supposed to be the compromise. And right away it could sort of like, no, we don't like this. And then Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 92 was supposed to be the compromise. And the right is like, nah, nah, nah. Look, we're only gonna go along with this as long as we have to. And now what happens after Dobbs, like 
right away from the right. It's like, okay, this is just the end of the beginning. We'll keep pushing, right? There is no appeasing them. There is maybe a truce to be had for a while, right? But no peace, right? Because at the heart of this project is this refusal to compromise with the vision of multiracial pluralism. They will not accept this. They will only, like, they will do what they have to do, right? But in the long term, they have a proper ideological vision. You have to take it seriously. Otherwise, again, you fall for this, what you think is a stable bargain, and they're already figuring out how to go against it. That's that's right. I mean, think about the extent to which the discourse of civil rights was used to make the case for school privatization, yeah. that, that Democrats and Republicans united and they made a data-based case that the reason that we needed more charter schools, particularly in urban areas, was that these schools outperformed their district counterparts and were sending uh, kids of color and poor kids to college at higher levels. The next step of the war on education laid out in Florida is to make the collection of data uh, measuring race or gender illegal, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it just, it just shows you how much more flexible the right is. And the Democrats are still busy producing reports about you know the the need for more urban charter schools, not not realizing at all that the terrain has completely changed and that this was in fact a handy way station. Yeah, um, we're gonna we're coming up to the end of our conversation here. Again, you've been so generous with your time already. I just just one last I want to ask you one last question because I want to get your sense of where all this is going, right? And how optimistic, pessimistic, or I don't know how we should sort of feel about this. I want to throw a quote from your book at you. So in your book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, in the preface to the paperback edition that came out this year, right? It was was early this year. Yeah, yeah. You write, um, we were trying to scare people. This is a quote. So you were trying to scare people with the hardcover edition that was published in the fall of 2020. And you actually worried. You say you actually worried. You might have been too pessimistic, going too far, Right. But actually, it turned out that you weren't nearly pessimistic enough. And so you write, this is, again, a quote, we want to open the paperback edition of the book with a confession. We badly underestimated just how vulnerable public, public education in this, is in this country. Okay, that sounds scary now, right? So again, where, like in your own, I'm not asking you to make predictions, more like what is your sense of where are we going and, and, and on a, where are you on a sort of optimism to apocalypse kind of scale? Well, I am actually a very optimistic person, oh, almost almost irrationally so. <laughs> but I would really encourage people to go back to the midterms and look at what happened to Republicans who ran on issues like school privatization yeah. and culture war. They did not do well. And, you know, there was a brief moment where they realized this and they kind of reassessed and you heard, you know, kind of like internal party reform reflection, you know, maybe we shouldn't have spent all of our time going after trans athletes. <laughs> um, and, and then literally 15 minutes later, you know, that has been completely erased because they're all now trying to out culture war, yes. Ron DeSantis. But, you know, actual, you know, voters uh, were repelled by that. The original theory of change that somehow independents or even suburban Democrats were going to 
cross party lines and vote for Republicans because of, of parents' rights has never, it has never been true. The only place that this issue has ever resonated is with the hardcore Republican base. And if you actually look at polling data, even in a place like Texas, less than 1% of Republicans said that going after trans issues in schools should be a priority for the party. Yeah. Like yeah. that to me, that's just crazy. Yeah. And so, yes, we are, are we are in an extremely polarized moment. It turns out that that public education is incredibly vulnerable yeah. when you're so polarized. But, you know, the reality is that these these issues are unpopular. And when Republicans ran on the idea that we shouldn't actually have public schools, they lost and they they are only getting more extreme. Can you imagine how extreme they'll be by 2024? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. We have to remember, yes, the situation is acutely dangerous, but, and it's, this goes back to what you what you wrote in this Nation article, right? If Americans understood, right? Um, and once they do understand, and once they once they see these people on the ballot, they're like, uh, I, thank you. <laughs> um, most people do support public education, and most people do support democracy, actually, and are kind of willing to learn how to live in a truly multiracial, pluralistic democracy. If it's okay with you, I'd like to just end it there because we we, yeah, would, we would be ending in a somewhat hopeful, somewhat hopeful place. <laughs> Again, I I could talk to you all day, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, one more time, everyone should read, listen, follow Jennifer Berkshire. If you want to stay on top of things, understand what's going on in this fight over public education and how it ties into the broader political conflict, Jennifer's work is where you should start. Her book, which she, which she co-authored with Jack Scheider, is A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. And it is great. You should read it. Her podcast is Have You Heard? And I cannot recommend it enough. It's also very entertaining, even though you tackle some serious complicated stuff but it's very entertaining jennifer berkshire thank you so much for this conversation thank you so much i could really just talk to you all day 